morning we continue our summer study through the book of 1 Corinthians entitled Good News in the Midst of the Slavery of the Prevailing Culture. And today we turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me there or to find the text printed on your bulletin insert. As you're turning there, I want to take just a moment of personal privilege to say that this today marks two years that I've been here as your associate pastor, which is kind of hard to believe. Um, today, as of, instead of two years ago, I'm a little less nervous to preach, but yet some things never changed in that Barry was on vacation when I started, just like he's on vacation right now. Uh, but it is a joy to, to be here. I'm thankful for the two years, the way that you guys have loved me and Amy and our son Bo, and we look forward to many years to come. That being said, let's turn our attention to the reading of God's holy word, 1 Corinthians 8. Before I read this text, let me pray and ask for the Lord's help. Gracious God, you have told us that we should not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. Lord, would you open our eyes to see wondrous things in your word. Speak, Lord, for your servants listen. Christ's name we pray. Amen. Here now the reading of God's word. 1 Corinthians 8, starting in verse 1. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, We know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, Not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience, when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God remains forever. In 1843, a 21-year-old scholar was doing research on the American Revolution and the events that led up to that war. Among those he interviewed was Captain Levi Prescott a Yankee who was 70 years older than him and who had fought at both Lexington and Concord. Captain Preston, the young man began, 
What made you go to the fight in Concord on April 19, 1775? What did I go for? The old soldier seemed shocked to hear such a question. The young man tried again. Yes, my histories tell me that the men of the revolution took up arms against intolerable oppressions. What were they? Oppressions? I didn't feel them. What? You were not oppressed by the Stamp Act? I never saw one of those stamps, Captain Preston replied. I certainly never paid a penny for them. Well, what about the tea tax? Tea tax? I never drank a drop of the stuff, the old veteran replied. The boys threw it all overboard. Then I suppose you had been reading Carrington or Sidney and Locke about the eternal principles of liberty. Never heard of them, Captain Preston said. We read only the Bible, the Catechism, Locke's Psalms and Hymns, and the Almanac. Well then, what was the matter? And what did you mean in going to the fight? Young man, Captain Preston stated firmly. What we meant in going for those redcoats was this. We always had been free. And we meant to be free always. They didn't mean to be slaves. On July 4th, our nation's Independence Day, it's hard not to think about freedom. We love the freedoms and liberties that we have here in our country, and rightfully so. They are a blessing. As Christians, we have freedoms as well. Theologically speaking, we call one type of freedom Christian liberty. Areas of Christian liberty might be the consumption of alcohol, listening to a certain type of music, dancing, playing cards, or so on. These involve liberty. Some may choose to partake and participate. Others may not. And that's okay. Because we believe that Scripture is not abundantly clear and does not definitively say what we must do in these areas. In the passage before us, Paul addresses the second issue about which the Corinthians wrote him. The first was marriage, as we saw last time. Now you might be thinking, John, this is kind of a strange passage. I mean, food offered to idols? What are we to make of that? Well, if that's your thoughts, you're not alone. I thought something similar the first time I read through this text after realizing this was what I was assigned to preach. I know now why Barry chose to be on vacation this week. No, I'm joking. At the heart of this passage is Christian liberty and how we are to act in a secular society. But we need to acknowledge that this is a challenging passage. You see, typically in sermons, Barry and I will have one overarching idea supported by several main points that all kind of ties together. We illustrate them and we apply them throughout the sermon. This sermon's a little bit different. In the first half, we are going to really dive into what this passage means with a particular emphasis on what it meant to the Corinthians as the original readers of this letter. And then in the second half, we're going to look at how this applies to you and I today. Yet one caveat before we dive in, 
is that it might be tempting to zone out in the first half and be like, hey, wake me up when we get to the second part. That time of application, that isn't really what I care about. But resist that urge. Why? Because understanding what this letter meant to the Corinthians' readers is going to solidify how it applies to us today. So let's dive in. Paul begins by saying, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. As I mentioned earlier here, Paul is addressing the second question that the Corinthians had, and they presumably wrote a letter asking him about it. And Paul's going to answer their question here in this chapter, and in part of chapter 9, and almost all of chapter 10. In order to understand what's going on here, we need to get a picture of the cultural situation. In the church in Corinth, there were both Jewish and Gentile background Christians. Corinth was a very secular city. Yet they worshipped many gods. And part of their worship involved sacrificing animals to these gods. These sacrifices were family affairs. Animals were slaughtered and sacrificed to the gods. Some of the meat was burned on an altar. Other parts were taken by the priests. And the rest were given to the family to do what they wanted. The parts that the priests didn't want, they then sold in a meat market. And the family would take their portion, cook it there in the temple, and have a big feast as part of their worship. Gentile background believers would have faced a dilemma. Do they eat the meat that's been offered to an idol, or do they abstain from doing so? What if they're invited to one of these feasts by family friends? Could they go, or could they not? And so they wrote to Paul to get his advice. And what we find here is his response. Now, almost as soon as Paul introduces the idea of food sacrifice to idols, he deviates and talks about knowledge. Now, why did he do that? Is there some kind of apostolic ADD kicking in? No, certainly not. Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is showing that there is more to the story here. There's something deeper going on in the Corinthian church. Notice that all of us possess knowledge is in quotation marks. That's an interpretation by scholars that this is probably a quote from the letter that they sent Paul. And this seems to be the best understanding. Paul is using the words of a particular group in the church. This group, we might call them the strong conscience group, in a sense, we're boasting about their knowledge regarding spiritual matters. Paul rebukes them and says that their knowledge puffs up. In other words, it leads to pride and arrogance. Instead of this knowledge, he says that they should have love. Love for God that translates into love for fellow believers. This love, Paul says, builds up, as Megan was talking about, rather than puffing up. Here, Paul is not condemning knowledge outright. 
to take verse 2 out of context, it seems that all knowledge is bad. That's not what Paul is saying. He is not undermining the, the idea that we can know anything like the relativism of postmodernism would have us believe. No, he's talking about a false knowledge. It's a knowledge of right facts, but a knowledge that leads to arrogance rather than humility. It's knowledge without love. And so that's very, very dangerous. I want you to pause here for just a moment and take this in. As Reformed Presbyterians, we are a group known for being people who love knowledge. And that's a good thing. But Paul is warning us that there is a danger with knowledge. It is possible for you and me to know so much doctrine and yet it do us zero good. It can go to our head and puff us up. On the contrary, our knowledge should lead us to humbly acknowledge the sovereignty of God. And it should overflow into love for Him. Friends, may our passion for truth never lead us to arrogance. Rather, may it lead us to love. Understanding the importance of love will be crucial for grasping Paul's answer to how to interact with food sacrificed to idols. In verses 4 through 6, Paul returns to this very concept. In verse 4, there are two statements in quotation marks. An idol has no real existence, and there is no God but one. Presumably, these are quotes, again, from the letters sent by the strong conscience party in Corinth. These are statements with which Paul agrees. Idols have no real existence. An idol to the god Zeus, or to the god Isis, or to any other deity is not real, for those gods do not exist. And Paul's second quote confirms the first. There is only one true God. As Deuteronomy 6, 4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There's only one God in the universe. His name is Yahweh. His Son is the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul agrees with these theological truths. He knows that they are doctrinally sound. But what we see in verses 7 through 13 is he disagrees with the application that some of the believers in Corinth are making from these truths. The strong conscience party took their knowledge about God and the non-existence of false gods and applied it in a very specific way. They believed that there was nothing wrong eating meat sacrificed to idols. Paul agrees that they have the right to do this. There was Christian liberty in regards to eating this meat. In effect, he's saying, if you lived in a vacuum, this would be fine. There's nothing wrong with it. But, there's a catch. In verse 9, Paul says, But be careful that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. While there was freedom in the sense that eating the meat was not sinful in and of itself, This freedom should not trump love and concern for other Christians. Paul goes on to say that the weaker Christian might see a stronger one in the temple of an idol eating meat, and this might destroy his or her faith. Paul warns that Christian liberty should not be used in a way that creates a stumbling block for other Christians. Now we need to be very careful. 
Paul is not saying that they had to avoid anything that might possibly offend them. That would be impossible because someone will almost always be offended by something they do. Rather, Paul is saying that they were not to use their freedom, their Christian liberty, to lead someone else into sin. For some in Corinth, they couldn't get away from the fact that meat offered to idols was so close to that false god. Thinking about the meat and considering eating it caused them to think about their former idolatrous practices, worshiping these false gods. They couldn't separate the two, so to speak, and so they wouldn't eat. Now to get the full picture of Paul's response, we need to look at parts of chapter 4. Don't worry, we're not going to look at the whole chapter. But in verses 20 through 22, Paul forbids the Corinthians from eating in these temples. He says this, No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. In other words, he's saying you cannot partake of the Lord's Supper, the meal that we celebrate regularly, and partake of a meal offered to demons. And so they were not to go and eat these meals in the temple as part of pagan worship. But in verses 25 through 28, he says that they can buy meat in the meat market. It was offered to these idols, and they can even eat in a friend's house as long as it doesn't bother the conscience of one of their friends. He says, eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Yet they had to be careful with even this freedom. Paul closes chapter 8 by saying that if food causes someone to stumble, he won't eat meat. He was willing to forgo his freedom out of love for his fellow believers. Does this all mean that we all need to be vegetarians or vegans? Certainly not. But we do need to be conscious of those around us and let genuine godly love be our motivation for all that we do. In summary, there's a few main points Paul is making. First, participating in idol worship at the temple is forbidden for God's people, these pagan temples. They were to have nothing to do with the idols of their secular culture. Second, they were free to partake of things offered to idols since the idols and gods weren't real. They did not have to avoid all food and other products from secular places out of concern for their origins. And third, the main idea is love for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Just because they could do something doesn't mean that they should. Rather, they were to consider their fellow Christians out of love. Now perhaps at this point you're thinking, John, thank you so much for explaining this difficult passage of 1 Corinthians 8. If I ever find myself in a pagan temple where meat is offered to an idol, I will know exactly what to do. And that's a fair thought. But we must remember what 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. In other words, all Scripture is relevant for all of God's people at all times, including 
1 Corinthians 8 about food sacrificed to idols. So the question arises, how do we apply this teaching to life in 21st century America? In order to answer this, we need to keep a very important principle of understanding the Bible in mind. This comes from one of our governing documents, the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 1, paragraph 6, which says, The whole counsel of God, concerning all things necessary for His own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life, is either expressly set down in Scripture, or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture. That idea of good and necessary consequence is how we go from what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 8 to how it applies to you and I today in 21st century America. This seems in order to use a couple of examples to help us understand this. Let's start with a fairly straightforward example. As I mentioned earlier, alcohol is a matter of Christian liberty. Scripture nowhere condemns the consumption of alcohol outright. After all, Jesus turned water into wine, and surely there was alcohol in that wine. However, Scripture does not, or Scripture does condemn drunkenness. For some Christians, they are fine having a drink or two, and that's good. Others, maybe based on an addictive personality or because of a past struggle, know they need to avoid it completely. Still others, because of their leadership positions, believe it's best for them to avoid alcohol so as not to impair their judgment. So what does 1 Corinthians 8 have to say to us? To start, there is liberty for those who feel so inclined to drink. At the same time, you should never put a brother or sister in a place that might cause him or her to sin. Does this mean you can never drink in public? Not at all. Remember, it's not about offending someone. It's about leading them to sin. Therefore, if you were to pressure someone to drink with you, or maybe simply by inviting them to a place where you're drinking could cause them to feel pressure to consume, then you would be sinning against them. And as Paul says, you would be sinning against God. Don't let your freedom to drink or not drink damage a fellow believer's faith. Here's another example. How are we as Christians who approach shopping at stores that have secular values? To be a little bit more direct, is it wrong for Christians to shop at stores that give money to organizations inconsistent with Christian values? Well, first, we must say this is a little bit of a gray area. There's room for Christian liberty. But based on what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 8, as well as chapters 9 and 10, it is not sinful for Christians to buy products from non-Christian businesses. We're told in plenty of places to be in the world but not necessarily of the world. If the believers in Corinth were free to buy meat sacrificed to idols or pagan meat markets, then by good and necessary consequence, we can buy bread or clothes from a store like Target. At the same time, some may choose not to give a particular company their business, and that's completely within their rights. There's Christian liberty there. Yet we must not force our convictions about something that the Bible is not 100% clear upon another Christian. To do so would be to violate their conscience and to sin against Christ. Remember, our motivation must be love for God 
name for Shmuel believed it. Another application of this teaching relates to what we visually consume through movies, TV shows, and online content. Teenagers and young adults, this is especially relevant for you. How should we approach shows and movies that portray things that we know go against our Christian convictions? I'll regularly hear people say things like, well, you know, John, I'm not really bothered by nudity on television or by loss of violence in shows or by dark demonic content in the movies. What Paul teaches us here is that Christian liberty does not allow us to consume immorality. In a sense, we are entering the temples of pagan idolatry when we watch debauchery and perversion. Don't be deceived. The sign of spiritual maturity is not a callousness to the things that are explicitly forbidden in Scripture. Our hearts should break for what breaks God's heart. We should detest the wickedness that isn't much of what's on TV and in movies. Just as Christians watch shows like Game of Thrones or read books like Fifty Shades of Grey, I don't believe so. We most certainly should not encourage others to do so, since that would not show Christian love. Yet how often do we give our brothers and sisters a hard time when we say something like, I can't believe you haven't seen such and such a show or such and such a movie, knowing good and well there's not godly content in that. One final example of application. What does 1 Corinthians 8 have to say about how we approach the sexual revolution in our culture, primarily in regards to the LGBTQ plus movement? Some argue that we simply need to love everyone and let God be the judge. Others have labeled homosexuality as the worst sin and perhaps the unpardonable sin. Neither of which fit with what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 8. Participation in the sexual revolution is not simply eating meat sacrificed to idols. Supporting that agenda is embracing the idolatry of our day, that gender and sexuality are social constructs, free for us to understand as we want. Worshiping in the temple of sexual freedom and human autonomy. As Barry mentioned last week, 1 Corinthians 6 is very clear about the Bible's position on these matters. We cannot compromise on the truth of Scripture. Friends, it is not loving to call evil good and good evil. It's the most unloving thing. Should we shun those in these communities? Absolutely not. We should love them with a biblical love, and this means calling them to repentance and faith, just like we would do for anyone who is not united to Christ. But we must not embrace the idolatrous philosophies of our day. Upon closer examination, 1 Corinthians 8 has a lot to say to you and I today. But these are hard things for us to grapple with and to apply to our day. But we must do so. This is not political activism. No, this is the truth of God's Word applied to our hearts and affecting how we live. But before we close, we must ask and answer one final question. Where is the gospel in all of this? We don't simply want to leave here today with a list of do's and don'ts. The gospel is found back up in verse 4. 
Paul says, if anyone loves God, he is known by God. The verb tense Paul uses there carries the idea of something that happened in the past with ongoing consequences. In other words, they have been known by God. They have been chosen and loved by God, and that love from God leads them to love Him in response. The gospel is that we have been known by God. Without being known by Him, we cannot live as this passage calls us to live. Yours and my greatest need is not to avoid food offered to idols, but to be known and loved by God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Then, and only then, can we live as God calls us.